Costume Drama Rewind with your hosts, Laura Skog and Megan Jett. Today, we're looking at Lee Daniels' The Butler from 2013. It has a star-studded cast with Forrest Whitaker, Oprah Winfrey, David Oyelowo, Isaac White, and cameos from a number of stars such as Mariah Carey, Jane Fonda, Robin Williams, Cuba Gooding Jr., Lenny Kravitz, and Alan Rickman. But... Before we get started, we want to inform you that there are some highly graphic scenes in this movie that depict sexual assault and racial violence. If you'd prefer not to hear about this, you might want to skip ahead about 45 seconds. Cecil Gaines' story opens on a cotton farm in Georgia where his family work as sharecrappers in an existence that has clearly not changed in any material way since the end of the Civil War and the passage of the 13th Amendment. As Laura mentioned, we're flung immediately into the violence and horror of the system when one of the white owners of the farm takes Cecil's mother into a shed and rapes her, then shoots Cecil's father in the head for daring to voice a protest. Young Cecil is taken into the house to learn how to work there, but leaves in his teenage years in search of a less relentlessly awful existence. Of course, life on the run is also full of danger, starkly illustrated when he comes across the aftermath of a lynching. Desperately hungry, he breaks into a hotel's pastry shop to steal food, where he's caught by an elderly black domestic worker who feels sympathy for him, but who also knows how severe the consequences will be if Cecil's caught. He's allowed to take a job in the hotel and learns all the secrets of the trade from bartending to personal service. Years later, he makes his way to Washington, D.C. in a job in one of the city's grand hotels, where he catches the attention of a senior White House staff member and is offered a job as one of the White House's many butlers. By this time, Cecil is married to Gloria and they have two sons, Louis and Charlie, and the Gaines family is living a solid middle-class existence in one of D.C.'s black neighborhoods. From there, we're off on a journey through eight presidential administrations, as the conversations and conundrums that Cecil hears while serving mirror his own family's experiences. While Eisenhower wrestles with school desegregation, Cecil's children are attending a segregated school in D.C., and his bright and bookish oldest son, Louis, is struggling with that concept. Lewis ultimately heads off to Fisk University in Nashville, where he joins protest activities led by the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, and is arrested taking part in a diner sit-in after he and his friends are violently attacked by a white mob. John F. Kennedy is elected, and Cecil forms a bond with him and his family, especially Little Caroline. Meanwhile, Lewis takes part in the Freedom Rides, and his bus is attacked by a group of Ku Klux Klan, who try to burn it out with everyone inside. Undeterred, Lewis continues his activism and takes part in the Birmingham Children's Crusade. Kennedy privately admits to Cecil that the violence of some of these incidents have opened his eyes and makes his address proposing what will become the Civil Rights Act. Meanwhile, Lewis has made friends with Dr. Martin Luther King and talks about his frustration and embarrassment that his father is in domestic service. In a reflection that's actually lifted in part from Malcolm X, but interpreted rather differently, Dr. King talks about how the black domestic servant can be subversive in his own way by showing an example of hard work, discretion, and dignity. During the Johnson administration, Cecil's estrangement from Lewis over what he perceives as his son's radicalism continues to deepen. Lewis and his girlfriend join the Black Panthers, and Cecil orders them out of the house and cuts off contact, but we see his anguish and fear when he overhears Nixon's plans to violently suppress the Black Panthers. Meanwhile, younger son Charlie enlists in the army and heads off to Vietnam, where he is killed. Following Charlie's burial in Arlington National Cemetery, Lewis grows uncomfortable with calls for violence from some among the Black Panthers. He quits the organization, returns to school for a master's in political science, and turns to more mainstream activism, eventually running for a seat in Congress. The Ford and Carter administrations pass in a blur, literally, as we arrive at the Reagan administration. 
Gaines has formed a cautious bond with the Regans in some ways. He facilitates Regans' well-documented habit of sending personal checks to people who wrote to the White House, and he also receives a personal invitation to attend a state dinner accompanied by his wife. He takes a stand for equal pay and promotional opportunities for Black domestic workers in the White House, something that he's been asking for for decades to no avail, but this time he enlists the president's support to make it happen. At the same time, Cecil is deeply disturbed by the president's refusal to impose sanctions on South Africa as a stand against apartheid, and decides to resign his position, showing up at a protest that Lewis is leading at the South African embassy. The movie closes with the quiet last decades of Cecil's life, including his retirement with Gloria, as he increasingly serves as her caretaker, and the couple's joy over Barack Obama's campaign for the White House. Gloria passes away shortly before the 2008 election, and Cecil spends more time with Lewis, watching election returns and celebrating Obama's victory together. He receives an invitation to the White House to meet the new president, and goes wearing one of JFK's ties, which was given to him by Jackie, and a tie bar that Johnson gave him. So, first impressions about Butler. Everyone has that list of movies that you want to see, and then you don't get around to going to the movie theater because you just get busy with everything else. The Butler was on that list for me, so I'm glad we finally got to watch it for the podcast. You know, same. And I remember reading the Washington Post article that sort of formed the impetus for it. More on that in a minute. But before watching, I also read the short book about the real story, which was good preparation, but absent a lot of the strong emotional core of the movie, which takes us right to the heart of the matter. Given that we both live in the DC area, we wanted to focus on some of the local elements of the story. So the character of Cecil Gaines is, of course, based on a real person, a gentleman named Eugene Allen, who did in fact work in the White House for eight successive administrations. Eugene Allen was born not in Georgia, but in Scottsville, Virginia, a town just south of Charlottesville in the James River, population 556 at the last census. His story seems to have been absent the early violence that Cecil Gaines experiences in the movie, but nevertheless, Eugene wanted to do something with his life other than work as a farm laborer in the Jim Crow South, and he received training in domestic work from a young age. As a teenager, he struck out for Virginia's famous homestead resort, honing his skills there before moving to the Washington, D.C. area in the early 1940s. He took a job at the Kenwood Country Club in Bethesda, Maryland, and met his future wife Helene at a birthday party in 1942, marrying her in 1943. In 1952, he applied at the White House and worked there for the next 34 years, retiring as head butler. Eugene and Helene bought a house three miles from the White House in Washington, D.C.'s historically black Petworth neighborhood and had only one child, a son named Charles, who served in Vietnam but returned safely, taking a job with the U.S. Department of State. Eugene's story wasn't widely known until the summer of 2008, when Will Haygood, a reporter at the Washington Post, set out to find someone who could speak to the experience of being a black domestic worker in the White House during the Civil Rights era. Someone gave him Eugene's name and thought that he might still be living in the D.C. area. Will went to the phone book, and more than 50 calls later, he finally found Eugene. Will Haygood spent some time with the Allen family over the next few months, preparing to tell their story as they looked forward to the possibility of America electing the first black president. 
Sadly, Helene died the day before Election Day. Their family's story ran in the Washington Post on the day of her funeral, generating an enormous response from throughout the country. The Obama transition team invited Eugene Allen to sit in the VIP section during the inauguration, which he managed joyfully despite it being a bitter cold day. My husband worked that inauguration with the Armed Forces Inaugural Committee and assures us that he froze his face off. The midday high temperature in D.C. was 28 with a wind chill in the teens, which both of us can tell you is miserably cold for DC. Oh, yeah. And nobody here knows how to deal with it. Nope. Eugene Allen lived another year after the inauguration and passed away at the age of 90 on March 10th, 2010. He's buried beside Helene at Rock Creek Cemetery in Northeast Washington, the final resting place for hundreds of other well known Washingtonians, and located just a stone's throw from one of my favorite historic sites, President Lincoln's Cottage the weekend residence for the Emancipation Proclamation was first drafted. Throughout Cecil's career, he advocates for pay increases, but he's unsuccessful until near the end of his career. Additionally, when Richard Nixon asks him and his co-workers what concerns exist in the Black community, they tell him that Black people have fewer chances for promotions and salary increases. Dr. Frederick Gooding at Texas Christian University says that this disparity has been consistent and widely experienced for other Black government employees for decades, in his book, American Dream Deferred, Black Federal Workers in Washington, D.C., 1941-1981. through 1981. Due to World War II, the federal government began opening up more job opportunities for Black workers in the D.C. area. These jobs were attractive as a means of steady employment, and like in both Cecil and Eugene's experiences, a way to escape the deadly Jim Crow South. As Dr. Gooding notes, while these were good government jobs— and gave Black people greater access to employment than in the private sector, many people found that once in the job, they were subject to discrimination, limiting their ability to be promoted or to get raises, and there was little way to protest how their employers treated them. Additionally, societal norms of discrimination and segregation made it harder to do their work, such as the limited places where Black people were allowed to live and the distance that this could add to their commute, especially before expanded public transportation. Gooding quotes one black worker who said that he was a little surprised to find the Washington suburbs more segregated than Little Rock. And these problems remain, despite civil rights executive orders and programs aimed at improving racial inequality. For example, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, founded in 1965 to enforce federal anti-discrimination laws in the workplace, originally didn't apply to federal workers, And it wasn't until the 1970s that the organization had jurisdiction over federal, state, and local government entities. Additionally, the EEOC was so often hit with major discrimination complaint backlogs that relief for those individual cases took incredibly long to arrive. Another problem that arose was that because of the EEOC, other agencies were less likely to take addressing discrimination themselves seriously. Even though Cecil is pretty mild-mannered in the times he asked to have his pay increased, he was still taking on a major risk. In 1969, Charles Shipp, a plasterer for one of the agencies, made a complaint about the delay in his getting promoted. His agency disciplined him for this, and then they never promoted him a single time during his decades-long service with the government. In sum, even with different areas of progress, Dr. Gooding found that Black workers who held these good government jobs were often blocked off from getting great government jobs. And of course, pay and promotion disparity for Black people in the workplace is still a major issue today. Early in Cecil's tenure at the White House, Eisenhower calls in the National Guard to protect Black students who are integrating the Arkansas school system post-Brown v. Board of Education. 
Cecil even has a brief discussion with Eisenhower about his children's school not being integrated. Even though the Supreme Court ruled against segregation in D.C. schools the same day in 1954 when they issued Brown v. Board of Education, in a case called Bowling v. Sharp, schools were still segregated in practice afterwards. This was due to the white flight from D.C. to the suburbs spurred on by desegregation. Additionally, the school system further exacerbated this de facto segregation by putting black students in less rigorous academic course tracks, using biased testing that was administered during early elementary school. Because it was practically impossible to bump up to a different track over time, it basically blocked these students off from higher education and the associated economic opportunities. Local activist Julius Hobson sued after his daughter was placed in the lower track. The case, Hobson v. Hansen, was decided by the D.C. Circuit Court in 1967, and they ruled in his favor. The court noted that all the evidence in this case tends to show that the Washington school system is a monument to the cynicism of the power structure, which governs the voteless capital of the greatest country on earth, and ruled that the impact of the tracking system unconstitutionally denied black children a right to equal educational opportunities. The system got removed, but part of the case's legacy was that even more white students in D.C. switched to private schools. Early in the movie, we see Cecil arguing with his son Lewis over the latter's choice of college. Cecil wants his son to attend Howard University, located just a scant mile from the Gaines' home in Washington. Lewis instead chooses to attend Nashville's Fisk University. Both are among the 101 institutions designated as historically black colleges and universities, founded prior to the civil rights era to ensure the higher education of black youth at a time when the overwhelming majority of colleges and universities banned or limited black enrollment. Most, but not all, are located in the South. Notably, Philadelphia has two as a place where large numbers of people settled after fleeing the Jim Crow South. Also of interest, a number of Jewish professors and other intellectuals who left Germany in the 1930s and encountered further anti-Semitism at predominantly white institutions in the U.S., found a home teaching at HBCUs so that two-thirds of the faculty hired at those institutions between 1933 and 1945 were in fact Jewish. So now we come to the big question. How many fedoras are we awarding to the butler? In evaluating this movie, we came across a quote from the screenwriter that's relevant here. Quote, We're not trying to set out a word-for-word retelling of historical events. We're trying to tell the story of the civil rights movement through a prototypical American family and how they experienced those turbulent times. We were much more concerned about a universal truth than we were about people criticizing if Eugene Allen did X, Y, or Z. On that basis, I'm willing to give a solid 4.5 fedoras to this movie out of 5. It does reflect some strong universal truths, and it was beautifully and sensitively filmed. Where I'd mark it down is in one of its smaller but more distracting side plots, in which Cecil's wife Gloria, frustrated with how much he works, falls into alcoholism and has an affair with a neighbor. While the screen's writer certainly didn't want people nitpicking what did or didn't happen, it is an odd direction to take. It's not at all inspired by the Allen family's actual story. In fact, the book makes clear that Helene was very proud of her husband's job and encouraged the strong sense of devotion that he felt. In this context, it really just adds tension to a story that needs no additional tension and distracts from the bigger picture rather than adding anything meaningful to the story. I'm going to go with the same score, 4.5 Fedoras out of 5, for similar reasons. Oprah does an amazing job in acting out Gloria's struggles, but I don't really like the idea of people seeing the movie and then thinking that the real Helene was having an affair. Finally, we come to just a few sundry other notes for this episode. With our actor count, this time John Cusack, who played Dimitri in our last episode, is back as Hot Mess Richard Nixon. 
Additionally, John Armijo, Edward J. Clear, Donna Duplantier, Elton LeBlanc, Chad Smith, Russell Heiser, and Jane Hames played background characters and extras in both this movie and Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter. I want to close by talking a little bit about time. Laura and I are both squarely in the elder millennial camp. Both of us were born in 1986. For people our age or younger, the civil rights era has always felt like it was a very, very long time ago. When I was in college, one of her professors had been a freedom rider, and that event seemed like it was out of another time and another world. One of the primary things that I've learned as I've gotten older is how short a span of time a decade or two really is. Many of the events covered in this film, from the Children's Crusade to Dr. King's assassination to Bloody Sunday, were a scant two decades, give or take a year or two, before we were born. That's the same span of time that has passed since 9-11. In other words, in our collective experience, and it's an impact on our culture and politics, something that really wasn't that long ago at all. I'm mostly directing this at other people our age and younger to say that when you're thinking about these events, it's important to keep in mind how very close in time to us they still are. Thanks for listening to Costume Drama Rewind. See you next time.